Hello and welcome to the Urban Permaculture Podcast. I'm Heather with Hogs and Hens Urban Farm and today I have a super exciting episode for you. It is one of my favorite times of the year and it is one of the busiest times of the year here at Hogs and Hens. We are going to be talking about seed starting. Now there's a lot of things that go into raising your own um, plants from seed and I want to make sure that all of our listeners have the absolute best chances for success with their little tiny plant babies becoming delicious fruits and vegetables or flowers if, if that's what you're growing that's totally fine too. So we're going to start out by talking a little bit first about some different types of seeds. Now I'm not talking about varieties of seed. I'm talking about the actual types of seed. So a lot of times when you are researching seeds, there's a lot of information out there. And if you're unclear about exactly what these things mean, it can really change uh, your perspective on what kind of seed you intend to purchase. So First of all, I'm going to talk about heirloom varieties. A lot of times when you're purchasing seeds, you're going to see the word heirloom on the seed packet. A couple of examples of that would be um, the Cherokee Purple Tomato. That is a variety of tomato that has been around for many, many years. And heirloom seeds are a generational type seed. So what that means is it is a variety of seed that has been grown and saved years after years after years and passed down from generation to generation until it has become, I mean, fairly standard across the uh, across the spectrum. One of my favorite places for ordering heirloom seeds is Baker Creek. Um, they have a huge selection of heirloom seeds, but you can purchase heirloom seeds, honestly, almost anywhere. I've even seen them at um, dollar stores. You can purchase them on most major seed selling sites because heirlooms are a really, really important part of our history. It's a way for you to take a bite into something that many generations ago um, would be eating a, a tomato, for example, that tastes nearly the same as the one that you just harvested yourself. Another type of seed that I really love to grow are open source. Now, um, there is an organization called the Open Source Seed Initiative, and they grow and distribute tons of different kinds of seeds through a variety of different growers who um, make sure that their seeds are all open source. Now, what those are, oftentimes open source seeds are a type of land race. So they are varieties of seed that have adapted over time. They are naturally pollinated by um, the birds and the bees and the wind and things like that. They may not always have a very specific genetic pattern and you may get multiple genetic patterns in one seed packet. And the reason for that is they are fully open sourced. What is open source, you may ask? It means that they are not segregated into a controlled environment. Their blooms are able to be pollinated with other species. So this is when you could end up with some really cool cross-pollinated versions of crop, but they are all natural. Um, they are a fantastic option for you and it helps keep things a little more on the natural side. Um, another option is going to be going with a hybrid, also known as an F1 variety, F as in Frank, F1 variety. Now, the thing with hybrids 
they grow some fantastic fruits and vegetables. They grow some great blooms. But seed saving from a hybrid is a really tricky tricky process. You see, a hybrid is when two plants have been cross-pollinated to create a third type of plant that is using some of the natural um, plus sides of some of the other, the parent crops to make a third entirely different crop. However, when you seed save, you have no idea what kind of plant you're going to get. It could be a replica of, of the parents. Um, it could be the male or the female plant. It could be some mix of the in-betweens, but typically a hybrid plant is not going to be a pure genetic mix of a brand new breed. That's going to take many years of, of work to get that to happen. So with an F1, there's nothing wrong with F1 hybrids. Um, you can create them yourself by simply cross-pollinating two plants that you have. Actually, we created an F1 hybrid last year by accident. We grew both zucchini and butternut squash and somehow we ended up with a plant that was a volunteer. It, it self-seeded itself and it was shaped like a butternut squash, but it had the dark green rind and the striations and looked like a zucchini. Now, when we cut into it, the flesh was orange like a butternut squash and it was very low in the amount of seeds that it had, but it was a very um, moist and juicy squash, more like a zucchini. And so we created our very one F1 hybrid. Now, had I seed saved those seeds and tried to grow it again, I could have gotten butternut squash. I could have gotten some zucchini or I could have had some strange green and orange hybrid once again. But because it was a hybrid, we really don't know what's going to happen. And for most people, you want to know exactly what you're growing. And so saving those hybrid seeds and those F1 seeds, it's maybe not the best option. Although you will still get a crop from them, there's no guarantee, you know, what exactly is going to come up. Now, you see the words organic and non-GMO frequently popping around these days. They've become almost like buzzwords. But what exactly does that mean? So for something to be certified organic, um, it is certified by the USDA. It cannot have any synthetics used on it, so no synthetic fertilizers, no synthetic pesticides. And um, somebody from the USDA will actually have to come out and inspect the property to make sure that every single part of the growing process for that particular plant is 100% non-synthetic. I can't say natural because neem oil is not synthetic, but it is a chemical that is being added. So understand that organic simply means that synthetics are not going to be used. So chemically processed and manufactured products are not used on them. Now, I say chemically processed because everything is a chemical. Um, water is a chemical. So you can't just say no chemicals are added. Um, GMO, if something is non-GMO, it means that they were not lab modified to become a genetically modified organism. So with GMO, what ends up happening is the DNA from individual species are put together and specific genetic sequences are spliced and kind of copy pasted into the genetic coding of these plants. So they are entirely manipulated by human hands to create the design 
desirable traits that folks want. So this is how you have, you know, species of corn now that are growing much larger ears and are requiring less nutrients and things like that. So there are several varieties of plants out there that are genetically modified. Now in our household, we grow, um, non-GMO vegetables on our, our farm. And we try to always go with organic, certified organic at that. Um, certified organic heirloom is even better or certified organic, um, uh, hybrids are fine as well. Um, so those are some of the options that are available. I do not personally like the idea of having synthetic chemicals um, on my fruits and vegetables that I'm going to be consuming because while they may be deemed safe, I am still not thoroughly convinced that any level of washing is going to remove those pesticide and herbicide residues from my fruits and vegetables. Now, I personally have a lot of digestive issues. Um, for example, I have a I have developed adult onset lactose intolerance. So I, in the past, I could drink milk and have no problems. But now as an adult, I suddenly have developed a lactose intolerance. And so when I drink milk or eat ice cream, I get very sick to my stomach and I'm very, very uncomfortable for a while until it's able to thoroughly pass through my system. So the idea of adding synthetic chemicals to my diet is something that I'm, I'm very weary of because I know that I already have some of these tummy troubles, I don't want to further exacerbate those problems or make them worse. But there are quite a few that have no problem eating uh, traditionally commercially farmed produce. And if you are going to do that, just make sure that you very thoroughly wash and dry your produce. Um, you want to make sure that any residues are removed. The problem with seeds is that if those plants were raised with those fertilizers and pesticides and, and things that were added, they're inside that seed already. And so you're starting out with a plant that is already used to having those chemicals or is already, um, you know, produced with those inside them. So when you start with a plant that is a non-organic seed, you run the risk of some of that that chemical residue, if you will, transferring into your garden. We work really hard at not doing that. So at our house, you'll find that the seeds that we grow are exclusively non-organic. Unless I'm doing a trial run on a type of fruit or vegetable, occasionally I will purchase a non-organic or I will trade for a seed that I cannot guarantee is non-organic because I do a lot of seed swaps. When you're doing seed swaps, a lot of times you're getting seeds in, um, you know, just a tiny bowl or an envelope or a zippy bag of some sort. And so they're hand labeled. You don't really know where those seeds have come from. You're not guaranteed that these are organically sourced or that these are non-GMO. Um, you're kind of at the mercy of whoever you are getting those seeds from. Um, so just bear that in mind. 
But now that you know what kinds of, of seeds there are, I'm going to refer back to our episode four where we talked about the most important tool in the garden, which is your garden planner and journal. Um, so from there, you're going to go back and you're going to make a list of all of the plants that you intend to grow. You need to make a list of how much yield you need from them. And yield is the amount of harvestable material from that plant. So if I know that I need to can 50 quarts of tomatoes and I know how many tomatoes roughly at this particular size will fit in each jar, I know about how many tomatoes I need. Now year over year, you can look back in your garden journal and take a peek at, well, this plant produced about 20 to 30 tomatoes last year and you can use that as a starting point. I always recommend if you have the space available to try to plant a few extra plants that above what you think you need. And the reason for that is no matter how hard you try to grow everything to perfection, you're going to have some plants that die. It's just nature. It, it, there's not a lot you can do about it. And just not all plants are going to live. So you're going to go back to that journal and, and take that information and you're going to go ahead and start planning out what you need to start as seeds. Now you can take those seeds and you can start organizing them by when you plant them in the ground and when you start them indoors. Most seed packets will have that information listed on the packet. If you've gotten them in a seed swap, I often ask the person I got them from if they have any of that information. And if not, you can always go online and do a little research and find out what um, a typical variety of that has as their um, plant indoors and plant outdoors dates. Um, so you'll take those and you're going to want to kind of group them together. So I have several plants that I need to get planted this week because they need roughly six to eight weeks of indoor um, starting time before they go outdoors, before my last frost date. And for me, that means I need to get them started um, this week or next. Uh, some of those seeds, I want them to be a smidge more mature before they go in the ground because Ohio weather here in Zone 6A can be very unpredictable. We've seen sunshine in 80, 90 degree weather in April, and I've seen snow in early May. So there's no guarantee when it comes to your frost dates. So I like to have my plants just a little bit more mature so that I am a little bit more secure in knowing that my plants are going to thrive and survive to maturity. Another important thing when you're growing these plants is to make sure that when you're starting seeds, you're putting them together with seeds with similar needs. Now, what I mean by that I would never plant a marigold and a sunflower in the same tray, even though they're both flowers. And the reason for that is that a sunflower grows fairly quickly and it grows very tall. So when my sunflowers are growing several inches and getting super tall, I need to draw them away from their light source a little bit more so that they don't end up getting scorched at the tops or curling at the tops when they reach the, the light source. But my marigolds are going to grow a little slower. They're not as tall of a plant. And therefore, if I grow them in the same tray, I'm going to have my marigolds stretching trying to get to the light as I move the sunflowers further from the light to allow for their growth. So you want to put things that are similarly heighted. You're going to want to put things that require similar amounts of water. Um, so that's really important. 
Now that you've got your plan in order and you're ready to start your seeds and you know when you're going to start your seeds, let's talk about the supplies that you need. So first of all, we need to make sure that you sterilize all of your trays, your tools, anything that you're going to be using to start these trays. These baby seeds are very susceptible to fungus and algae and bacterial growth. And because we're putting them in a warm, damp environment, those things are going to thrive. So we want to make sure that we eliminate as much of the risk of those things happening as possible. And the way we do that is by sterilizing the things. Now, I know at our household, we're using a lot of plastic trays that we're reusing from years in the past, and I'll be using some plastic cups that I've got that I'm going to be um, using when we order from our local pizza place. Um, their, their pizza special comes with two plastic cups. So instead of throwing those away, I just poke little holes in the bottom of them and use them for seed starting for some of my bigger plants like my sunflowers, which I know are going to grow fairly quickly and I'm going to need to pot up fast. So I just start them in a larger container to begin with. But the way you can sterilize your things, there are multiple options available. Um, I always like to start them out with giving them a good scrub. Um, So spraying them off, you can use a garden hose or your kitchen sink, spray them off real good with some warm water and just some good old fashioned soap. Um, make sure that all of the soap residue is washed very well and clean. And then you can take a very lightly diluted vinegar mix and put it into a spray bottle and spray your trays and your tools with just distilled vinegar. Um, let that kind of hang out for about 10 minutes because vinegar needs about 10 minutes for it to be effective. And then I personally rinse it off because vinegar is acidic and you do not want acid on your baby seeds either. But that acidity is what kills off a lot of the fungus spores and the bacteria and things. And so it's important to do that. Once you've got them sterilized, then you can, um, you know, go ahead and start using them. As for trays, you can use the plastic seed starting trays that you can purchase at your garden centers online and on our website. Um, you can also use cookie sheets uh, as, a, as a tray for your seed starting mixes. Depending on how you choose to do your, your, your seed starting setup, you may not need individual little cells um, or the, the four or six pack little cells like you can purchase at a greenhouse. You may not need those. Um, one of the great tools that are available is a soil blocker. So you, you make a mix of soil st- or seed starting mix and you get it pretty wet, and then you use this tool and basically pack it fairly tightly with your soil, and then set it on your tray and push a button, and the button will release the the mold, if you will, and allow those blocks to live on your tray. Now, the nice thing about using a soil blocker is that you are reducing the space that the actual plastic trays need, so you can actually fit a few more seedlings on your tray. Another great thing about them, you can use some baking sheets um, to start your seeds with these soil block methods. Reusable aluminum foil pans, the tin pans that you use for um, like carrions and things like that and potlucks. It's a great way for you to use those because they've got enough space underneath them that you can still bottom water. You can also use uh, cafeteria-style trays. Those work great. I prefer them because they're plastic. Um, The one thing to be cautioned about if you do use the cookie sheet method is that they're metal. So if your light source is warm, 
like the sun beating down on it, if you're using a sunny window, it can heat up those trays and that can cause them to dry out much quicker. So you do need to be a little cautious of that. Pots. Um, so the next thing you're going to need to to start your seeds is going to be pots. If you're not using a soil blocker, then you need some kind of vessel to put your seed and your seed starting mix in. Now there's a lot of varieties of things you can use for that. I personally have gotten a fantastic deal and so I am still using them up. I have a ton of little pucks. Um, they are Jiffy brand and I got them from a friend who had an abundance. And so they are little dehydrated pucks and you put the seed in them and you soak the pucks into a little tray. They make perfect uni uniform little sized uh, seed starting cells and you can bottom water them. And when you're ready to plant, you can just plant the entire thing in the garden and the little mesh bag that keeps the dirt together is biodegradable. So you can put that in your garden. Now, I have found that I, I personally prefer to remove the little bags because they don't break down as fast as I would like them to. And so I'm afraid of my plants getting a little root bound. So I will either cut the bags completely off, which they pull apart with your hands when you're ready to plant them. Or I will sometimes just slice the side of them, like split the side so that as the plant grows, it can break free if the bag has not yet biodegraded. Um, I've also used some, some seed starting trays with some plastic six cell um, starters. And I'll use my seed starting mix, which we'll talk about in just a second, and fill those seed starting trays up and use those as well. I am very much somebody who likes to reduce, reuse, recycle, and I am all about the use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without methodology. So um, that is my methodology when it comes to starting seeds is using what I've got. Now, last week I talked a little bit um, about using paper towel um, or toilet paper, toilet tissue tubes. You can cut those down to whatever side you need them to be, and then you can either fold the bottoms under to make little cups or you can also just use a rubber band and a coffee filter at the base of them to kind of plug the bottoms of them up and you can fill those with dirt stack them into a tray and use those as your seed starting trays those you don't really have to uh, sanitize because they are a paper product they are not something that the bacteria is as likely to hang out on so I do not sanitize my toilet tissue tubes, though sometimes if I'm feeling like there may be something on them, I will spritz them very lightly with rubbing alcohol until they're very lightly damp, and then I'll let them dry until the alcohol is entirely dissipated. Once they're completely dry again, I know that anything that was on them is now dead. Something else that's really important that you're going to need is a light source. Now, a lot of people will plant their, their plants into a windowsill and let the natural sunlight do its magic. Unfortunately, with a lot of plants, they need far more light than the sun can provide in February or January, depending on where you're at. And so supplemental lighting becomes really important. 
In our case, we have a T5 light that we hang above our plants and it adds lighting from above. And then we also have just some grow lights that have both red and blue lighting um, because the different colored lighting, um, you want full spectrum because they will provide different things that the plants need in order to survive. Now, the sunlight provides full spectrum lighting, but your traditional fluorescent bulbs and overhead lights don't always do that. I'm going to have a link on the show notes for um, a link to Amazon where you can find the T5 lights that I really definitely recommend. A dear friend of ours turned us on to these lights and they are super inexpensive and they are fantastic. They do a great job. Another thing that's important with seedlings that a lot of people don't really think of is fans. Now, what I mean by that is once your once your seedlings have started sprouting, they need airflow. You see, if they are just left to their own devices, they will just grow and grow and grow. And sometimes they stretch a little trying to get to light. And so they'll develop these tall, skinny stems. And that makes them weak. What you do is you put a fan on them. I prefer an oscillating fan, but if you don't have an oscillating fan, that's okay. You can use a small desk fan or even a fan from a computer um, to put on them, and you want to make sure that they have a light breeze going across them. That causes these plants to get a little bit more used to what nature is going to be like when there's going to be high winds and things coming through and a, a gentle breeze. And so their stems develop strength, which is going to help them to live. It also helps to keep the very top of the soil dry once they've sprouted so that you have less problems with dampening off and with rot. Also, it helps with um, just keeping bugs and things away from them while they're growing indoors. It helps with gnats because they're going to want to avoid that that wind. Um, I would not use that as your entire gnat prevention method, but we'll get to a gnat prevention method in a moment. Um, you're going to need some kind of place to stack these things. Now, we use some, um, it's, it's the closet-made shelving that is designed for, you know, fixing up a closet. But we have a suspension system, and we have them hanging from one another. We have chain dangling from them, and then we use carabiners or carabiners on the four corners to adjust the height of the shelves. That allows us to control how far from the lights they are and it allows us to adjust as the plants grow and stretch and need to be moved slightly further away. You can use a baker's rack, you could use plastic storage shelving from you know your local big box store, you could build things. It doesn't have to be fancy, it just has to be functional. Um, In addition to that, you may need heat mats. Now, we plan on growing eggplant, okra, and peppers, and all of them do better germinating when the soil is warm. In fact, they won't germinate at all if the soil is too cool. Now, we keep our house a little cool in the winter. We live in a house that was built in 1885. Energy efficiency was not really a concern in 1885 because nearly every room had a fireplace, and if that room got cold, they just stoked up the fire. So... Until we get our house a little bit better insulated, we keep it a little cooler so as to save money on our heating costs. With that in mind, my peppers will not germinate in a cold house. And so if I want them to germinate and it's still cold sometimes in February, then I need to put them on some kind of a heat source. I definitely recommend using a heat mat. Um, 
They are designed specifically for seeds. They are a, a heat controlled. They're not going to go too hot to where they burn your plants. And they're not going to be so low that they're not giving any benefit. I've seen people that have used electric blankets and folded them onto a shelf and put them on a low setting and started seeds that way. I personally do not like that because, <clears throat> excuse me, it gets a little too warm, I believe. But in a pinch, you could somehow suspend that, you know, heat source underneath it. You could also put one of your racks above a heating vent in your home um, to allow some of the heat from your, if you have floor heating, then you can allow some of that heat um, to radiate up. That's another option for you. But heat mats are going to be key if you live in a cooler climate and you're trying to start things like peppers, eggplants, and okra, which are very much warm loving uh, seeds. Some things that aren't necessarily required are things like a dibbler. Now, a dibbler is a little tool that you can use to simply poke a little hole into your soil to plant your seeds. It allows you to have a uniform soil depth and a, a uniform sized hole, so it allows a little bit more control over your planting. I have a dibbler. I actually bought a set um, that is designed for looking for things in the sand. It's a, a plastic scoop with holes in it and you scoop up sand and shake it and it strains the sand. With it, it came with a dibbler because it's, it's for you to poke around in the sand, but the dibbler actually has height measurements on it. So when I'm planting my seeds, I can actually use my dibbler and I know exactly how deep I've got the tip of the dibbler in the soil. Because um, we're going to talk about soil depth in just a little bit. And it is really important to know how deep to plant your seedlings. Another important thing is labeling. Now, you can do any number of things with labeling. But there are a few methods that seem to work a little better than others. Um, if you use the plastic labels that you can find online. The problem with using a Sharpie on them, for example, is that over time in the sun, the ink from your Sharpie will bleach out and you won't be able to read your labels generally by the time they're harvestable. If you use those little plastic labels, you're going to need to use a paint marker and they take a lot longer to dry. So a lot of people are shying away for that. I actually love using popsicle sticks. Um, you can get them in your craft department, super cheap, and you can write on the popsicle sticks, again, with a Sharpie, and because that ink is in the popsicle stick, um, the wood, it is absorbed a little better, it doesn't tend to fade nearly as bad. You can also use um, little metal signs. You can really do anything. On my seed starting trays, I just take a little piece of paper and I write what it is and when I started it and I use a little piece of tape and I just stick it on the outside of the tray um, and, and label it that, you know, this half of the tray is all this and this half is all that. Or I'll say, you know, this corner, this quarter in the corner is this, etc. depending on how I've got my trays, you know, lined up. But I just do that until I go to plant them outside. And because I've used that planner that I've talked about many times, I know exactly what's where in my garden and I actually don't have to use labels outside because I know exactly what is where because I've put it there and I have it on a map that I keep in my garden planner. So there's no question of, hmm, what kind of a tomato is this? I know because I only planted this type of tomato there that that's the type of tomato that's going to be. So that allows you to, you know, to 
save on the labeling in the garden. Watering needs. Now, you can use a watering can to water your seed trays, but I do not recommend it because seedlings do best when they are bottom watered. What does that mean? That means you pour the water into the bottom of the tray and the moisture absorbs through the holes that we talked about, those drainage holes in the bottom of your seed starting vessel. The water soaks up and it only takes as much water as it needs. Now, by bottom watering your seeds, you are preventing the tops from staying too moist, which helps to avoid dampening off, which is oftentimes when the seedling basically rots at the soil level because the soil is too damp. It just it just sogs the, the stem and then the seedling can't overcome it and it dies. Now, when my seedlings are little tiny babies, I often use, I have a spray bottle. You pump it up. It's for, it's a, sp a garden sprayer. Um, I got it at the Dollar General. It was $3. It holds uh, just shy of a gallon of water. And you just pump the top and it sprays out at whatever controlled misting style you like. I have mine on a really fine mist. And when my seeds are babies, I will just go through there about every day or two and I will very lightly mist the top of the soil to make sure that they have moisture when those seedlings are first germinating. Because when seeds are first planted, they need to be moist in order to germinate. And so that's how I can make sure that my seeds are staying moist enough to germinate. Now, as soon as those seedlings pop up from the surface, then they get bottom watered and I don't have to worry about them dampening off as bad. Now, as for your seed starting mix, this is a super important step and this is where a lot of folks go wrong when they're planting. It is really important that you are using a specific mix for starting your seeds. What I mean by that, a general potting soil is not good to start your seeds in. And the reason for that is that oftentimes your potting soil has larger pieces of not quite broken down material in them. Seedlings need really soft, light, fluffy soil in order to start their very tender little tiny baby roots. If they have a root that's taking off and then it runs into a chunk of, of bark or a chunk of stick, then it's got to reroute and redirect its energy trying to route itself around that chunk. So there's a couple of options for that. Now, I'm not saying that seed starting mix is the end-all be-all, but it is what we use here. The potting soil, you can run through a strainer. A lot of people use a piece of um, screen and or hardware cloth and a little wooden frame that they've made. And you can just kind of shake it out to, to sift out the bigger parts and just throw those in your compost bin or sprinkle them in your garden. They're still good material. It's not a waste stream. They're just not good for your tender seedlings. But what I like to do is, is I like to make my very own seed starting mix. Now, baby seedlings do not need nutrition. They do not need fertilizer or any kind of additional nutrition on them. What they need is a damp environment that's very loose and very airy so that they can spread their own little roots and take off. Everything those seeds need for the first phase of their life is actually contained within that seed. They actually feed themselves initially. So my seed starting mix is a mix of either sustainably harvested peat moss or 
I have more recently switched to using coconut core. Now that is also sometimes called um, coconut hull or um, coconut shavings. Now that is not the part you eat. It is the brown wiry kind of outside part of the coconut plant and it is a sustainable option. It is dried and then pulverized and turned into a dust that really truly looks just like peat moss, but peat moss is not sustainable and is not, um, peat moss harvesting has recently, um, I've learned, become very bad for the environment and it's not sustainable. So I've tried to shy away from that lately. To that cocoa core or peat moss, because um, I will use what peat moss I have. I already have it, so I'd like to use it up. You can do the same. Um, I will add vermiculite and perlite. Now, a lot of people wonder, you know, what is vermiculite and perlite? You hear a lot of places talking about it, but unfortunately, I have not found a ton of sources that actually explain to you what those are. They expect you to know. I'm not that guy. So vermiculite is a mineral and it is added for water retention. So by mixing that into your mix, you're allowing the soil to stay nice and damp because peat and coconut core are naturally a little hydrophobic, meaning they don't want to suck up water initially. It takes them some time for that water to really get in there. Perlite, on the other hand, is volcanic glass that has been heated to a super hot temperature until it pops like tiny little pieces of popcorn. You, it, It's the stuff that feels almost like styrofoam when you see it in um, potting soil or soil mixes. It, it literally feels like popcorn um, or styrofoam pearls, but it's not. It is It is a natural substance that is puffed up organic glass. Uh, I'm sorry, organic, volcanic glass, and it adds aeration. Now, the specific mix that you are using for your seed starting mix is going to depend on what you're planting, but I like to do two parts of peat or cocoa core with one part vermiculite and one part perlite. If I am planting something that is like a succulent or a cactus, I will add a little extra perlite and a little less of the vermiculite. That allows it to be more airy and it allows the dampness to dissipate better. So for your succulents and your cacti and other plants that like a more dry soil, adding perlite is going to help accomplish that while still keeping that soil loose and crumbly. So now that we've got your seedlings going, we've got them planted, you've sanitized ahead of time and things, now what? Well, I told you before that using potting mix isn't necessarily a no, but that you need to sift it. A couple of things you need to bear in mind with potting soil, topsoil, or using soil from your garden. I don't recommend using those things for many reasons, but a really strong reason for that is that you have to go through a sanitization process to really use those things. So you can do that by baking your dirt in the oven. You heard that right. You're going to put that soil inside a baking vessel and put it in the oven and cook it because you need it to be inert. You need it to not have any life forms in it. So if you're taking soil from your garden that you've worked really, really hard to add compost to and organic material so that it has bacteria and fungus and all these things to make your plants thrive when they're grown, and then you dig it up and throw it in the oven to kill all that stuff, it seems fairly counterintuitive, right? Right. 
Well, the other thing is seedlings need a lot more loose soil than your average garden soil is. So again, you're sterilizing something that you don't need to sterilize. You're better off just starting with a seed starting mix. And when it gets into the garden, it'll be at the stage that it's ready to absorb those nutrients. And that's when you can start using an organic fertilizer if needed. And you can mix in some compost in the hole when you go to plant and transplant. So now let's talk about a few areas where people have some fail points when you are starting seeds. So the number one reason that seedlings die off for folks is that they've either added too much water or too little water. It is a fine balance. I won't lie. There is a, a quite fine balance there. But if your seedlings are dry on the top of the soil, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're dry inside. And so if you're watering them every single day with loads of water, what ends up happening is they end up getting waterlogged. The roots will rot. The stems will rot right at the soil level and you'll get that dampening off and you'll lose a lot of them. At the same time, if you don't water them enough, you'll see them start to curl and shrivel and die. If they are a little more mature and you start to see them curling or shriveling, you can give them a little extra water and oftentimes they will bounce back, but they may not be as strong as they could have been. So bear that in mind. Another area I see folks struggling with is that light source. Now, You'll find conflicting information. There are many gardeners who will tell you that external or grow lights are not required for their plants to grow healthy. I'm one that definitely believes that they help quite tremendously. Um, the, the plants that we have growing in our, our house, we have an indoor garden, and we grow our own salad mix and, um, and things in our house. Those plants have more than doubled in size since we added the grow lights to them. And I did it as a, a bit of an experiment, but that's a way to, to get that to happen is to make sure you have ample light. There are tons of different light options out there. I would recommend doing your own research um, as to your specific type of plant that you're growing. If you're growing something that's green and leafy, you're going to want a little bit different light mix than if you're growing a fruiting plant because different gradients of light are going to elicit different um, different results. So that's not a one size fits all answer, but look into it, do some research. And eventually I'll be getting some articles I post on there, um, on the hogsandhensdayton.com website with some information about lighting options. Another thing that people do, um, that causes their plants and their seedlings to die is they use the domes that come with a lot of your seed starting trays. They come with a clear plastic dome that in essence turns your seed starting tray into a tiny greenhouse. Now, those are fantastic. I definitely love using them. They keep the moisture and the humidity into the soil. So when you're trying to get your seeds to germinate, it'll help them germinate faster and you'll have to water less. But as soon as your seedlings start to sprout, you need to take that lid off because again, you run the risk of them being too damp and you'll dampen them off and you run the risk of them dying. So unless you are putting them under the dome for a frost issue, which hopefully you don't have in your home, there's really no lead, need for that lid once the seedlings have sprouted from the ground. 
And in fact, some seedlings like carrots like it cool. They actually don't like heat when they're germinated. So if you put those domed lids on carrots, they may struggle. Now I direct sow my carrots, so it's not really a problem for me, but do bear that in mind. Fertilizer. A lot of people are, are accidentally killing their seedlings by fertilizing them or by putting them into a mix with natural fertilizers, whether synthetic or organic, doesn't matter. Those seedlings don't need those things. And in essence, they just get burned or they become dependent on them from the very beginning. And either way, it's not a good situation. So just know that until your plants go outside, there is absolutely no need for fertilizer on them. Just that perlite, vermiculite, and peat or core mix is quite plenty. Another thing people fail to do is harden off their plants. So when they've grown indoors all this time, you need to get them adjusted to outdoor living. But that that is a very, again, it is a very fine balance. You need to put them outside in indirect sunlight so that they can get used to the natural sunlight and the wind and bees and, and rain and things touching them. However, do it for only a couple hours a day at first and build the time that they can stand outside and definitely do not put them in direct sunlight. Um, I, I, <laughs> I had some help last year. My son did not know better. And when I told him it was time to put our plants outside, I thought he knew what we were doing and he misunderstood. And so my plants got put on a concrete table right in the middle of the sunlight and they cooked. I mean, when I brought them in three hours later, they were just shriveled up and brown. They absolutely roasted to death. And so I had an entire seed tray of four week old tomato plants that I had to start over because they all got fried and died. So be wary of that. And also, um, as you start hardening them off for longer periods, be wary of your, your temperatures outside because you also do not want to put them outside if there's going to be frost. You still want to bring them inside and protect them from frost. Another reason sometimes seedlings will fail is if you're using old seed. Now, there are seeds that will thrive and grow for many, many years if they're stored properly. But bear in mind, when you're storing seeds, they need to be kept in a cool, dry place. If they are exposed to too much heat or too much cold, or if they have any dampness, it can cause them to try to sprout, or it can just kill them off completely. So when you're planting older seeds, keep that in mind. And I definitely recommend planting extra when you're planting older seed to account for them possibly dying um, and not thriving. Also, a lot of times when seeds do not make it to maturity, it's because they're not getting potted up. What that means is if I start them in a one inch by one inch little tiny seed tray and I now have a four inch tall plant, I only have a one inch base. That's not enough space for the roots. So on some of your bigger plants, like sunflowers, for example, or even tomatoes, you need to plant them up into bigger plants or bigger pots to allow them to grow a little bit more before you put them in the ground, especially if your frost date is, is later in the season, if you're in one of those cooler climates. Give them time to grow good and strong before you put them outside and they'll thrive because they'll be already close to being at that fruiting stage or, or flowering stage. Pay attention to your seed depth. That's another place where um, people often fail on their seed starting efforts. Not every seed is planted in the same way. Some seeds require light in order to germinate. 
some required being buried very deep down into the soil and have no access to light in order for them to germinate. Make sure you read your seed packets and research the the varieties because that's going to be a game changer for you. Making sure that your your seed starting pots are all very well draining is important because again if they sit in too much water and that soupy mix they're going to they're going to rot. Starting them too early or too late is a big game changer. If you start your seeds too early, then they are too big indoors and they just can't thrive and they skip that fruiting stage. If you start them too late, then by the time you get them in, it may not be the right growing temperatures for them. If you start your cool season crops, for example, and you wait too long to do those, you're putting them in when summer's creeping in and they can't handle those high temps and they'll die. We already talked about the height differences, but that's really important. Also, their watering needs. Make sure you are planting seedlings together that have similar watering needs once they're grown. So I wouldn't plant something that is a heavy feeder like corn besides something like nasturtium that can pretty much be left alone as long as the soil has some moisture somewhere in it because I'm either going to flood my nasturtium or I'm going to dry out my corn. So try to plant things that have similar watering needs in the same seed starting areas if you're going to combine them. And last but not least, once you've got all your seedlings started and you know what you're going to grow and how much of it, go back and listen to episode nine where we talked in great detail about companion planting and make sure that you have your plan set in stone for where you're going to put all of these plants before you get to the garden. If you haven't planned ahead, you may end up accidentally growing way more flowers than you have room for. You may end up with not nearly enough vegetables for your garden and it can create a lot of problems for you then and you don't want to have to start over. Well, that's all I have for you today. Uh, We covered quite a bit of material today. Make sure that you check out hogsandhensdayton.com. Our website has links to a lot of the products that we talk about on our podcast and links um, with some coupon codes. Uh, Currently, we have a coupon available on our site that'll give you $10 off a $30 order for Back to the Roots. We absolutely love and cannot sing enough praises for their Mushroom Grow Your Own kits. They are amazing. And we're going to be doing a mini episode sometime in the next few days about um, those mushroom growing kits. So be on the lookout for that. If you haven't already found us on Facebook, Hogs and Hens Urban Farm, definitely check us out on Facebook and share some pictures of your seed starting setup and, and tell us what you got going on on your farm. Until then, I hope your garden grows strong and I hope your seedlings all germinate to perfection. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning in.